Well, good morning again. Would you take your Bible and open it to John chapter 8? John chapter 8, we'll read verses 12 through 20. The word of the Lord reads, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Father, we ask that you would use this time for your own glory, that we would see you as you are, that your word would go forth, and by the power of your spirit, you would give us sight to see you and to be transformed by you. So Lord, we ask, God, that your spirit be working in each individual heart in this room, that we would love you and cling to you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. The New York Times released an article in November 2020, and they asked voters about their hopes for the next four years, regardless of, of who was occupying the White House. They asked voters, what, what is your hope for the next four years, regardless of whoever ends up in that White House? And they polled, polled people from all over the country, from all states, different ages, um, male and female, and they asked different people, what, what are their hopes for the next four years? I'm going to read a few of their responses One of them from Wilmington, Delaware, it says that I'm tired of COVID-19, so I hope the country can move past. This has been the worst time for us in our lives, and I want to see that get better and the economy get better. One person said from Candler, North Carolina, I want the people to have harmony and love for one another in the country. I'd like to see the people get back to work, take care of their families and everything. This one married couple from Maryvale, Arizona said, the wife said, I want peace within and peace outside. I want the country to come back together as caring, loving, and concerned citizens where we really live in a way where we can support each other. Her husband said, I would like for us to be sane again. (laughs) I don't know if we ever were, but... (laughs) This one 89-year-old from Marshalltown, Iowa, she said, we have more hate in this country than we need. I'd like to do my part to get rid of some of that, but I don't know where to start. There are many other responses, but one theme that kind of stood out from all this is the acknowledgement of brokenness and hurt within the country. Now, obviously, COVID has just highlighted some of those things that were already there, but you can see the hurt and the acknowledgement of of really just brokenness that is ingrained in, in so many aspects of our nation now, that division, hate, 
all of these things are just really rising to the surface. And it's interesting that even people outside of the church acknowledge that. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But to have that acknowledgement of this brokenness and that hurt that is there. For the church of Christ, it's important for us to realize that we have good news. Do you believe that? In the midst of all this, we have good news. Do you believe that? It won't always be welcomed with open arms, hear me. But the best remedy for a world, a world that's in darkness is light. It's the best remedy, is light. Now, I don't want to oversimplify the problem. I know that there are legitimate, tangible needs. And there's a proper context and a proper place to meet those tangible needs. But let's, let's never forget that we have a real God who meets real needs. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save those who didn't even know they needed to be saved. And that's precisely what we see in our text here. That in Jerusalem here, amongst these lost Jews living in darkness, although they don't even know it, here Jesus comes to the scene and he proclaims, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Do you believe that this morning? Believer, this is not an assertion that we're unfamiliar with. But I want you to understand here that this light is one that you need to run to often. It's not just a light in terms of this concept of truth, but a person who embodies this light, Christ himself. Believer, you need to be closer and run close to this light. You need to run to it often. As we're called to live in this dark world, the best place for you is to be close to the light, to be close to him. And there's a humbling thing here, is that the closer you are to the light, it should expose the dark remnants that still remain within you. That the closer you get to the light, it highlights more of those dark remnants that still remain. And may that revelation of the darkness draw us closer to him for transformation. My prayer for you this morning here is that the Lord would do that in your heart this morning. That as we see who is this light of the world, that you would cling to him and throw off all the sin and heavy burdens that lie within you, that you would find him to be your all in all. This statement here that I am the light of the world is, is an I am statement. It's one of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. We talked about this a few months ago when we looked at John chapter 6. Now, each one of these I am statements reveals a different aspect of Christ, his nature as God, and his work as Savior. That each one of these I am statements are an assertion of his deity. That he is not just a man, but he is God in the flesh. He is God come down. The very phrase I am, ego, me, it's, 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 it's a reference of his divine nature. Pointing back to even Exodus chapter 3 verse 13. When Moses is encountering God. And he, he says, well, who should I tell them sent me? And God tells him, I am who I am. That I am who I am that I, my, my character never changes, that I am all that I am, and I will always be all that I am, no matter what. The statement to say even to I am, it's, 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 it's a high statement that even the Jews understand what Jesus was saying because at the end of this chapter, at chapter, in chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus asserts before them, says that before Abraham was, I am, and they picked up stones to throw at him because they realized what he was asserting. That he is, I am. That he is Yahweh in flesh. Now in this passage, John chapter 8, verse 20 through, verses 12 through 20, 
and proclaims that Christ is the light of the world, that you may have confidence in these dark days that we're living in. He proclaims that Christ is the light of the world, that you may have confidence in these days of darkness. And we see this demonstrated in in three movements throughout the text, that he is the light of the world. We see this demonstrated in three movements that I want us to see here. The first movement we're going to see in verse 12 is the announcement. Is the announcement. It's the very announcement we've already said, that he announces at the very, very beginning, is that I am the light of the world, that he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. The light of life. This is not the first time you see here that John uses this motif, this picture of light and darkness in his gospel account. That he's constantly contrasting the light with darkness throughout this gospel. If you go back to chapter 1, when it's introducing this, this, this Christ, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In John chapter 12, verse 35, it says that for a little while longer, the light is among you. Even outside of this gospel, as John writes his epistle in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says that God is light and what? In him is no darkness at all. That this, this, this motif that God is light, he is righteous, he's holy, he's pure, he is not dark. He does, there's nothing in him that is sin. There's nothing in him that is fault, but he is light. And Christ here is saying that I am the light of the world. But what all is being taught when he asserts that he is the light of the world? What all is Christ saying in this statement, I am the light of the world? What all is being implied there? In order for us to understand this, we must understand that John is continuing his discourse here from chapter 7. Which is why in verse 12, at the very beginning, he says, Jesus, what? Again spoke to them. Now, if you look at John chapter 7... Let's ask, what was going on during this time? Let's, let's set the context for us. What was going on in John chapter 7? If you go back to John chapter 7, verse 2, it says, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths, was near. Verse 12, But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, the feast of booths, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So now Jesus is where at in this statement? He's at the Feast of Booths. He's at the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of the Lord, the Feast of the Ingathering, or even it's just known as the Feast. Like it, it was so well known that he was just referred to as this is the Feast, the Feast of Booths. And what it really was, was it was a seven-day celebration, and it involved various rituals and instructions for the Jews to do during that seven days. Going back to describing what do they do at this, this, this Feast of Booths, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 37 and following, it details how they were to celebrate this Feast of Booths. And what they were to do was they were to take one of the things they were to do, they were to do many things. One of the things is they were to take leaves and branches, and they were to take all these leaves and branches, and they were to construct kind of like a small house or a small tent, a booth, and that they were to live in that booth for seven days. It says in verse 23 of Leviticus, sorry, verse 43 of Leviticus 23, 
is that the reason why they're to do this, why they live in these booths, these branches, this tent, why are they living there? It says that so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So they're celebrating here this, this, this fact is that they were once, at one point, Israel was living in these branches of, of the branches of leaves in a booth, in a tent, and it was to commemorate the fact that God had them live in booths when he brought them out of Israel, when he brought them out of Egypt. This feast was one that commemorated not only the Lord taking Israel out of Egypt, but it also celebrated the beginning of God leading them through the wilderness. Josephus, a Jewish historian, he referred to this, this, this feast as one of the holiest and greatest of the Hebrew feast. That this was a big deal among them. It was almost like our 4th of July. We celebrate with rad, uh, fireworks and, and barbecue and all that. that. That's a big celebration once a year. Everyone knows the 4th, right? We just say the 4th. This was their feast, the Feast of Booths, where they celebrate the fact that God kept them and preserved them throughout the wilderness. Now stay with me here. One of the ways that the Jews chose to celebrate during the seven-day feast or the seven-day seven day uh, seven feast was a ceremony, and it was called the illumination of the temple. The illumination of the temple. So during the seven-day feast, they had this one ceremony, the illumination of the temple. And what they did was they would, they would light these huge menorahs or, or candelabras, these huge uh, kind of lighting sticks, and they would light them up in the temple courtyard, and it would be so bright, so bright, they even said that there was not a, a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect its light. It was a huge lighting ceremony that they did. And during the Feast of Booths, why was this candle lighting so significant, if you think about it? Why would they light huge candles during this, this feast of booths that commemorated God leading them throughout the wilderness? Why would they light these random candelabras? The light reminded the Jewish people how God was with them in their wanderings in the wilderness, and a pillar of cloud by day and a light by night, by fire by night. That these lightings in the, in the temple courtyard reminded them how God kept them and led them throughout the wilderness as a cloud by day and as fire by night. So when they lit that, they, re, they reminded them, this is what our God did for our ancestors. He kept them, he brought them out of Egypt, and not only did he bring them out of slavery, but he also guided them throughout the wilderness with his own presence in a cloud and a fire by night. Numbers 9 Chapter 9, verse 15 through 23 highlights that, how God was faithful in providing for them. So, of course, they would celebrate this grand ceremony because it highlighted the fact of how faithful God had been toward them. And now back to our story in John chapter 8. Look at verse 20. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one sees them because his hour had not yet come. This passage we read here, it, it takes place in the treasury where Jesus is speaking. This treasury was one was as a well-trafficked place of the temple. It was, the out, it was the outside courtyard. It was also called the court of women because the women could also go there. It was where also people of Israel, they, they would place their offerings. They had many different boxes or, or they called them trumpets where you can place your offerings. It was a well-trafficked area. And then in this, in this treasury, this court of women, this is where oftentimes Jesus did his teaching that he went to the courtyard. You see that multiple times throughout the Gospels. This is where he did his teaching because he knew this is where many people would come to place their offerings. This is where the women could come in. This is kind of where he staked out his teaching. And where does Jesus proclaim here? We see in this passage here. What does he proclaim to them? 
these Jews who are blind in darkness right here where they would also have the lighting of the menorahs. What does he proclaim before them? That I am the light of the world. That I am the light of the world. That as Israel followed the pillar of light in the wilderness, Jesus is inviting himself to, for all of them to walk after him. That not only you're looking back toward here, you're looking back in the wilderness, but I want you to hear now, Israel, I am the light of the world that I am the true light, that the way that the Jews followed the the cloud and the fire by night in the wilderness, I am the light of the world. I am the true direction. But not only the light of the world, but I am the light that brings life. Here, Christ was asserting the fact that I am the one who led you. This is not just saying that he is just this new revelation for the world. He's not this, this new enlightenment for the world of truth. But he's saying, no, 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 I am this light. To make this claim during the festival that commemorated God leading his people through the wilderness would be huge. In the very courtyard where they light up these large menorahs, he said, no, 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 I am this light. So now instead of following your old dead religion, follow me. I am the light. This invitation was not just to view the light of this world or to acknowledge that he's a light. But he's saying to those, follow me. Follow me. You follow me and you will have the light of life, he says. Not only will you not walk in darkness, but he says that you will have the light of life. This is also important for us is that he's, he's not just saying here, just, just don't look at this light. But he's saying here is those who follow me will have the light of life. That in other words, whoever believes who he is will obey him. It's not just a matter matter of acknowledging who he is, but he's saying here, follow me, believe who who I am and walk after me. In a real way here, the Israelites were not just to follow him out of obligation. I mean, think back in the wilderness. If they were just following this this cloud, just to follow it for the sake of following it, they realized, no, no, I'm following this light. I'm following this cloud because I realize if if I near off to the right or to the left, I'm going to be in the darkness alone in this wilderness. I'm led out of, out of Egypt with, with essentially nothing about except what God provides for me. If I do not follow this cloud, if I do not follow this light, I'm going to perish here in the wilderness. That everything that I need is contingent upon him. So Jesus here is saying, don't just look upon me, but follow me. Those who, who follow me will have the light of life. He's calling here for wholehearted discipleship. This is a radical call to follow him. He's saying to these Jews to follow them because he's the only way of surviving. You see here that this light imparts life, that you will have the light of life. Not only will you have light, but you have the light of life he's offering to them. It's not just a change of mind or a change of attitude, but he's offering life. So as he stands here in the midst midst of these Jews, he's saying here, I am the light. I am the way. I am your only source of provision. He's really pointing back, if you look at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, one of the servant songs in, in, in Isaiah. And it says of the servant to come, this Messiah to come. It says, I will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may, may reach the end of the earth. That he is the fulfillment of this very prophecy in Isaiah. That he is the light of the nations, so that salvation may come to everyone. So he's not only the light of Israel, he's the light of the world. I am the way for life. I am the way. Follow me. I am the only way. We'll come back to some further implications of this, but let's, let's move on to this next movement in the text. 
the first movement, the announcement. The second movement here is the accusation. The accusation. Now, instead of actually engaging with Jesus' claims, it's typical Pharisee, right, is, is they dismiss them as entirely false. They say it's not true. It says this, the Pharisee said to him, you are not testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. It's interesting here, they support their accusation on the basis that he's testifying about himself. According to the Jewish law, and even reflecting in, in, in Old Testament law, they, really, they were influenced by the Mishnah, which is the rabbinical writings, and they basically took the law of, of God's inspired word, and they would take from the teachings of, of further teachings of how to implement God's law. So if you want to honor the Sabbath, this is what you would do. If you want to do this ritual, this is what you would do. The Mishnah here was not inspired, but this is what the rabbis took in order to make sure that they follow God's law strictly. So this is how you get these, these legalists here, that they want to follow the law so tightly, so much so, that this is what you must do in addition to God's law. So you want to obey the Sabbath, this is what you do. This is how many steps you can take on the Sabbath. This is what you do. So a lot of times they're, they're going by the Mishnah, their own writings, which weren't inspired. And so they're saying here, you're testifying about yourself, Jesus. Your testimony is not true because in the Mishnah and also in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says that in order to accept a claim, you must verify it by what? Two witnesses, right? You need two witnesses. So they're, they're hearing his claim and already saying, rejecting it's false because they're saying you're testifying about yourself. You're your own witness. It's false. So they reject it. They refuse to believe on a bogus technicality. I mean, which really isn't far from the heart of many unbelievers, it's not people reject Christ because some intellectual hiccup. Most of the time, it's because they reject Christ because if I do believe that he really is, I am, that he truly is God, there are implications for my life that I must submit to his lordship. If that is true, if he is, I am, if he is the light of the world, of the entire world, without exception, everyone is accountable to that. If I do not follow that light, that means I'm in darkness. They're really, they weren't, it wasn't a matter of a, this law technicality. It was really a matter of the heart. They refused to believe him because of all the implications that would mean for their own life, for their own Mishnah, for their own law. It would mean true radical submission to this Christ. This light of the world here. Christ comes in and he invites this salvation security to all who would draw near to him. Now keep in mind the context here. Jesus here, he's not just speaking to Pharisees. He's, he's stepping into Israel to Jews who are lost in darkness. And he's offering salvation and security to all who would draw near to him. And yet he's rejected by the Pharisees. Which isn't really a surprise to us. Because John chapter 1 says that when the light comes into the world, they hated the light. Why'd they hate them? Because they love darkness. And they hate the light because they don't want their deeds exposed. John chapter 3, verse 20. The light comes in here. You see the, the natural response is, oh, I've been trying to see my whole life. Let me go to this light. But no, no, they reject him because they love the darkness. They don't want their deeds exposed. It's beyond an intellectual obstacle. It's a heart issue that I want my own way and I want to live my own way and I want to follow anyone. I want to follow my own path. I have it together. 
I don't need someone to tell me I'm a sinner. I don't need someone to tell me I'm in darkness. I don't need someone to tell me I need to surrender my life. to. No, I, I got it together. I can live my own way in my own soft religion. They were religious people. I can live, go to church my own way. I can do life my own way, but I do not need to submit to anything else. If I like it, I'll submit to it. If I don't like it, I'll have an excuse why I don't follow it. But at the end of the day, I'm my own light. We don't want the light exposed because I want to live in my darkness. That's the case for many in the church today. And you see that reflecting even back to these Pharisees. No, 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 no. You're testifying about yourself. Let's dismiss him. I mean, you think about how you hear of uh, these celebrities who are raised in a Christian home and you see how their life is just a wreck now. And they give some sort of bogus excuse of why they don't follow faith or, or they're spiritual or why they don't follow Christianity. But at the heart of it, you are exposed to it and you know the truth. And how is it that someone can hear and encounter the truth of God and go a total opposite? At the end of the day, it's, I want to live life my own way. But nevertheless, what I love here is that Jesus deals directly with their accusation. He deals directly with their accusation in this third movement we're going to see. It's the answer. The answer. The first movement, the announcement. The second movement, accusation, this third movement now, we're going to see the answer. And he provides three answers that specifically address their accusation. It's three different answers. And each one of these answers, they not only address their accusation, but they inform us of who Christ is. Who is this light? I want you to hear. That not only is he addressing the obstacle and the accusation against him, but he is informing us of who he is as the light of the world. Each one of these I am statements reveals the nature of the Savior and his his nature of this God and the nature of his work as Savior. And here we also see who is this Christ? Who is this light? This not only applies to them, but applies to you this morning. Because if this is true of Christ, all of its implications are also true for us this morning, for your life this morning. As we sneak peek at this veil, he kind of opens the veil to review his, his nature. Let's look at this first answer he gives us in verse 14. The first answer is his, his, he reveals his origin and his destination. His origin and his destination. In verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So immediately, this knowledge, there there is knowledge that he has that they do not. He says, even if I do testify by myself, which is not, which we'll see. He says, even if I do, it's true. You don't know where I come from, and you don't know where I'm going. He's not just talking about errands. He's not talking about I'm about to go to Galilee. No, no. He's saying, ultimately, you don't know where I came from, my divine origin. You do not know who I am. And because you do not know who I am, you do not know where I'm going. He knows, Christ says, I know both, both of those things. I know who I am and I know where I'm going because I, everything I know is true. I'm God. They know neither. And so they're not even capable of commenting on his authority because if they don't know him, where he came from or where he's going, they have no right to speak on any claim that he makes. But who is he? Where is he going? He is the word became flesh as John tells us. He's the word become flesh. And before coming, becoming flesh, he was with God, as we read, and he was God. And he was always existing as God. He was always was. He was always existing. 
that this, 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 this man was not just a man, but he is God come down in the flesh. He is the word become flesh. He was with God and he is God. He was always existing as God. And not only that, but he is going to the cross. That he is going to the cross. Where is he going? He's going to the cross. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to lay his life down as a ransom. If they understood that about him, they would believe his claim. But they didn't understand his nature as God. And they also didn't understand his work as Savior. Because if they did, there would be a different story. They didn't know either one. So not only his destination, his origin or his destination... We see a second answer that Christ gives, and it's his union with the Father. His union with the Father. In verse 15, Jesus exposes the fact that that you judge according to the flesh, he says. You judge according to the flesh. Now for them, in, in other words, their rationale, their capability of discerning right from wrong, is by and according to their own earthly faculties. It's by their own flesh. So their judgment is obviously false. It's incapable of of actually rendering a true judgment. He's saying you're thinking according to your own flesh, according to your own earthly faculties. In other words, you need spiritual eyes to see spiritual truth, and you do not have them. You're judging according to your own flesh. The rationale is only by their flesh. That's why, I mean, think back. God looks at the what? The heart. Right? But man looks at the outside, and that's what they were doing. They were looking at Saul rather than looking at David, right? That they, they were looking at this man who was, what, this man come out of Nazareth? What is he saying? He's, oh, he, I am? What, what, no, no, let's reject this. But they could not see because they didn't have eyes to see. They're judging according to the flesh. This is why one can hear the message of Christ and still walk in blatant darkness, This is why you can proclaim all you want the truth of what Christ has done for sinners, that he went to the cross bearing the sin of sinful man, and he died and rose again, conquering the power of sin and death. And he's bidding all to come unto him so that you can be forgiven and be restored and to follow him. He's calling everyone to come to him. This is why someone can hear that very message and still live a cold, dead life in darkness, enjoying their own way of life because they're judging according to the flesh. They can hear that message according to their own earthly faculties. They need spiritual eyes to see spiritual truths. And yet we see here these Pharisees judging according to the flesh. We need spiritual sight. But he says even if he does judge, he says that his judgment is true. Why? Because his judgment is united with the Father. Look at verse 16. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Some huge claims here. He's he's saying there's an intimate union that he has with the Father, and he's affirming that, that I and the Father who sent me, that there's a union there in essence, that he can claim I and the Father. That's why Jesus says, when you see me, you have seen the Father, that I and the Father are one. That I'm not alone in my judgment, he says. That what I'm saying, it's not just some random man who came down. No, no, I am united with the Father. And not only am I united with the Father, but guess who sent me? The Father. You see, it's still a distinction in personhood. He's not claiming to be the Father. He's saying, no, the Father who sent me. 
We are one. We are one in essence. We are one God. And yet there's a distinction in person that this God the Father sent his son here to proclaim this truth to the world, that I am the light of the world. So follow me. This intimate union here that he claims, that that no one else can claim, that I am, and that I and the Father are one. That he is God. That's not enough. At this point here, Jesus appeals to the very law that they sought to impose against him. Look at verse 17. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So now you see his answer, you see another answer here is not only his union with the Father, but also his testimony with the Father. So now he even condescends to their own argument. They were initially saying, you're testifying about yourself. And now he specifically addresses that concern by saying here, now even in your law, whether he's referring to the Mishnah or if he's realizing that they're referring to the Old Testament, regardless, if you're saying there needs to be two witnesses, there is that testimony. And that is me. And who's the second person? My father. That my father testifies. So he's not even violating the law that they're seeking to uphold against him. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm upholding that. Because even there is two witnesses. It is me and my father. That there is one who testifies beyond me. That's the father. But here's the real issue at hand. They do not know the father. I mean, think about it. They think they know the Father. They think they know God. But here, Jesus exposing here is that you don't know either one. Because look what they ask him right after that. So they were saying to him in verse 19, where is your father? You, you say you got two witnesses? Okay, well, let's, let's bring him to the stand. Bring him to the witness stand. Your honor, jury calls witness two, right? Where is he? Where is your father? And this is where Jesus blatantly tells them, you know neither me nor my father. That's the issue. You don't know either one of us. If you did, you would know. If you knew me, you would know my father also. If you knew my father, you would know me and vice versa. The problem is that they didn't know him or his father. So much so they ask him, okay, where where is your father? Where is your father? Now, whether or not this was mockery referring to Joseph at this time, because Joseph is his, his earthly dad who was likely dead by now, whether or not they're referring to him, or if they were genuinely pressing him, we can't be certain. But regardless, in this culture, to question one's paternal identity, it was an insult. Like, like who's your father? I mean, think about genealogies, according to the father, to ask and question one's paternal family tree, that was a huge and grave insult. But he's saying here, the issue at hand is, you don't know my father, and you don't know me. Later in this chapter, we won't look at, but verse 27, it says that they, don't, they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. That that was the issue. That they didn't understand that he's speaking about the Father in heaven. So we know their greatest fault was what? It's unbelief. It was unbelief. They hear Christ comes to the stage. He proclaims, I am the light of the world. And what do they do with that knowledge? They reject it because of their own fleshly rationale. And Christ here is saying here is that I am God in the flesh. The Father testifies about me. And what I say is true because me and the Father, our testimony is united and is one and we are true. And not only that is I do have a witness, the Father. So lest we miss the point as well, 
We don't want to be like these Pharisees. We want to hear this message true. We want to hear what is Christ saying when he says that I am the light of the world. What is the Lord offering to people who are walking in darkness and do not even know it? What is he offering? It's that he is the light of the world. And now in this day and age, as I think Don said just recently or just earlier this service, is that I am the only way. That there is an exclusivity here. That I am the light, the only light of the world. I am the only way that offers salvation. So anyone who would come and follow after me, they would have the light in life. It's interesting here that he, he offers this, this announcement, this invitation here in the court of women to many who likely sought their security in their own dead religion. That there are many people here offering their, their, their taxes, paying their, their tithes, they're paying their offerings, going to this temple, and they're seeking the security of who they are in their own dead religion. And here in the midst of this courtyard, Christ is coming to the scene and proclaiming, I am the only way to have life. That I am the only way. I am the true light. I am the light that brings life. He offers this for those who sought security in something else. Now listen here, even in our day and age now, many, many different sects of of belief and many different areas, even of Christianity denominations, but at the end of the day, for the many people who proclaim to be Christians here in our country now, many people who are crushed by these world's events, by everything that's going on in our world, even the past year, year and a half, everything that's going on, we have many people who are crushed Many people who feel defeated, even maybe in this room, that feel defeated and feel, feel, feel downcast, depressed, and overwhelmed with, with the changing times of this world. But hear this, is that in the midst of this confusion, in the midst of this darkness that Christ realizes and acknowledges, he is proclaiming that he is the light of life. That if you are overwhelmed, marked by just there's this overwhelming weight of burden of just what we're living in now. Hear this message. There is a light that needs to be shed. That he is the only true light. That what is the only hope for us now in these dark days? It's the light. Do you know this light? Follow him. He says, those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I know this is maybe obvious here, but in a room this size, it's a small room, but there's still many souls in this room. Let's be honest here. Let's just, let's just be honest here. There may be even some in this room here who are walking in darkness, and you know it. Or maybe even some who are teetering in darkness, maybe even contemplating darkness. If you're playing with sin and thinking because you're in the darkness, you can get away with it. I want you to hear this in love this morning. Come to the light. We didn't, no one can see the state of the heart here. Only Jesus can see. The true light can see the state of this human soul. I don't know where you're at this morning, but if you're contemplating and you're living or teetering or playing in the darkness, hear that this morning, judgment is coming. He says, I didn't come to judge anyone, he says in this verse. But he says also in the same gospel that all authority to judge has been given to him by the Father. He did not come to judge at his first coming. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. But hear also this. The same one who wrote this book also wrote Revelation 19, who says of the same king, he says he's coming back, not offering olive branch, but he's coming back with a sword. And he's coming back to enact justice and righteousness on this earth. He is coming back to judge. But he offers life right now. So hear that. 
He offers life right now. Follow the light. Cling to the light. He is the light of the world. He says, do not follow anything else, but follow me and you will have the light of life. Believer, what at all does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world that we can meditate on and grow in for us? What does that mean for us? This is a statement that's well known that he is the light of the world, but, but I want to here give you confidence in three areas of your life that Christ is the light of the world. Let me give you some confidence in three areas in your life. The first is that confidence in your Savior. Believer, you have the light of life. You notice that back in verse 12, he says that those who follow me, you will have the light of life. That is a great promise that he's giving here is that if you follow me, you will have this light. I am the light of the world. But he says, now, if you follow me, then you will not only not walk in darkness, but you will have this light of life. You will have eternal life. You will have a life with me. This is a grand promise he's saying here. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, which Pastor Eric will get to maybe in a few weeks, is that you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Why? Because you have the light of life. That not only do you have light and truth in you, but you have eternal life. You are the light of the world. And so not cover it up, but rather expose it. This is a gift he gives to his followers, that you know the truth, that God has shed light to your sin and your wickedness. He has shed light to your need of a savior. He has opened your eyes and given you spiritual eyes to see that he is who he says he is, that you cannot see that and discern that in and of your own fleshly faculties. He gave you sight to see that he is the light. Now, believer, cling and submit to this light. As you like, as an Israelite in the wilderness, Go and submit to that light. Follow where he leads you. Follow that light. Be close to this light, that he is the light. So come close to Christ, believer. Cling to him. Not only is he saying he's the light of the world, but but the benefits and the comforts that came with the cloud in the wilderness. Think about that. All, not only is he just leading them, but look at, think of all the benefits that came from the Israelites walking according to this, the cloud and the fire by night. Is that they were comforted with his provision. They were never hungry. They were protected from harm. They were in his care. That he led them and guided them through every difficulty. That they, were, as long as they stay close to where this light went, they were in good care. Believer, the best place for you is to be under his truth. To be in him, to be close to him. Confidence in your savior. He's never going to leave you. He says that that I am your protection. I'm your guide. He says, I'm your dwelling place. Do you trust his leading? Or do you grumble in heart when he takes you through dark days? When the wilderness seems to be so desolate, is your face reflecting his light? Do you look to his truth? Do you submit to him? Be confident. If Christ is saying that I am this light, you'll never, never be in danger if you're following him. Be confident in your Christ. Be confident in your Savior. Also a confidence in your walk. Not only confidence in your Savior, but confidence in your walk. As one who follows the light, does your life reflect his light? Does your light, excuse me, does your life reflect his light? 
you, you are the light of the world. Does your life reflect his light? It should give you a proper perspective because you think about it, do, do you view the world as darkness? Let, let's get real here. If that's the case, if he is the light, believers, we need to realize, have a proper perspective on the world around you, that it's darkness. I expect darkness to be dark. I don't expect to get anything of benefit from anything outside of him. I don't expect favor. I don't expect prosperity. I don't expect anything. Who knows what happens if we lose everything, if we have to go underground church, you know what? I don't expect that because you know why? It's darkness. You're going to look dark. But guess what? This gives me a proper perspective because I expect the dark to be dark, but also I know and confident my God to be my light. So no matter where I am in the wilderness, no matter how dark it gets, no matter what prey comes after me, guess what? I'm in his care. Nothing can happen to me. That I realize that the world should not look appealing to me. I don't look for appeal from all these things in the world, from all the desires, everything that's outside of him. I don't look to that for my appeal and to my draw, for my confidence. That gives me nothing. And if it does give you some sort of satisfaction to have something in this world, question, why? Because he is the only light. He is the only way in these dark days. There's no appeal to this world. This is why. We're just soldiers walking through. He's the light. Don't expect anything from this world. And also for us, this is only one way to follow. Anything else, if, if I drift from this light, I'm going to expect to have dark days. If you have dark days, you have dark days, maybe some dark days this week, this month, if you're in dark days, question, are you living in the light? I expect, don't get me wrong, I expect dark and difficult trials, but I'm saying my response to those Am I looking for hope outside of the light or am I looking for hope in these dark trials that that I wish they would change? Also, no matter where you find yourself in the wilderness, his light will never lead you astray. Even in the wilderness, no matter how dark, no matter how heavy, stay close to the light and his truth. Wherever it takes you, I know the best place for me to be is to be where he is. Someone said it this way, is that walking through obstacles in the light are a lot easier than facing them in darkness. There's a lot of truth to that. Facing obstacles in the light, it's a lot easier than facing the darkness because I can see them. You think about it like a haunted house, right? What would happen if you went through a haunted house during the daytime and turned on all the lights? <laughs> like, no, no, it'd have no phase on me, right? I mean, no, I see, what, I see it as it is because I see the light. I see what that is. No, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to make my way out of this house. No problem. Walking through obstacles that you will face daily, believer, is a lot easier walking them in truth of what God's word says than walking them without having truth, walking them without Christ. And thirdly, I'm going to give you confidence in, in opposition. Confidence in opposition. In this passage here, Jesus proclaimed that, that he was a light in the world, and the world hated these words. They hated him. They sought to seize him multiple times, but it says at the end of, in verse 20 that they couldn't catch him because his hour had not come. They hated these words. How much more will they hate our proclamation that reflects that same message? You will get, op- you will get opposed. They will hate you. If, if, if you proclaim Christ is a light, many will hate you. But also hear this, many also will love that message and follow to it. Because you look at it at the end, of the, toward the end, in the middle of this chapter in verse 30, it says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. The light will repel many, but it also attract many as well. 
You have no responsibility of what this light will do. All the responsibility is for you to shine this light, to live this light, to proclaim it brightly and let the light do its work. It let it expose the darkness and let those who hate it, hate it, but let also attract, attract and draw in those to the light who are in darkness and looking for shelter because God gave them spiritual eyes to see that. All you can do in the face of opposition is to proclaim the light brighter and brighter and brighter. The faithful proclamation is what we're concerned with. We don't shrink from this simple message, but rather we uphold it in this dark generation. You notice here how Christ, he speaks with such authority in this. Rightly so, because he's God, so everything he says is true. But if you're speaking that same truth, we shouldn't shy away from the truth. We're speaking with authority because it's not our own words. We should never shrink from the gospel, shrink from this message that you do need a savior. Yes, this this world is broken. Who knows what tomorrow has? But you know what? Christ said he came to seek and to save that which is lost. I'm not ashamed of that message. That's why Paul says I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God and salvation for those who believe, for the Jew first and the Gentile after that. I am going to proclaim this message. That Christ speaks with authority so we should have confidence even in the face of opposition. If this were not true, if Christ was not the light of the world, if he is not the light of the world, offering salvation for those who follow him, if this was not true, we would have every reason to be an anxious, a fearful, an uncertain person. If this passage were not true, you would have every reason to fear today and tomorrow and forevermore. If this were not true, We have no hope. But hear this. There's no other way for us to survive in darkness, in these dark days, apart from embracing, following the light of the world. That he came to bring life and salvation to the ends of this world, to the ends of this earth, so that all nations will flee to him and to come to him for salvation. Let him do that work. We have confidence in this light that all who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What comfort it gives for us to know that we are not walking in our own strength, by our own authority, but by the one who stands and speaks, and every word he speaks is true. As you have a flashlight, you take on a hike. You go on a night hike. You know, some will gather around that, that flashlight because it's light, and they need the light. You know, also that same light will attract prey because they want to attack and take it out. And that light exposes darkness, but that light also, it brings life and it brings shelter. Let the light do its light, that Christ is the light. He's truth. And apart from him is darkness. So may we trust in this light of light this light of the world, may we cling to him and follow him and to realize that I have confidence because he will lead me and guide me through the wilderness. And no matter where he takes me, I am in good hands because I have a good God. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are the light of the world. That in Christ, we have everything we need for life and godliness that we take comfort in the fact that you said you would never leave nor forsake us. That you are God who, who not only offers salvation to all, 
But Lord, we also, we take hope in the fact that you will come to judge, that you will come to bring righteousness that we long and crave for. We long for righteousness to reign upon this earth. So Lord, even now we cry out, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. May we cling to him as our only hope. And Father, I pray that any in this room who do not know you and know your son as the light, the only way, that today they would cling and come to him through a heart of repentant faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.